My dear Bangadzes and Boffins, Tooks and Brandybugs, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, nigh 20 years hence. Is it secret? Is it safe? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. In classic Tolkien fashion, Emily has chosen many names to uh, have during this podcast. (laughs) Today's episode is Riddles in the Dark, covering Gandalf's return to the Shire and Frodo and Sam setting out on their journey to Rivendell from 2001's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So I wanted to open up today's discussion with a discussion of Lord of the Rings Online, which I know nothing about, but (laughs) my friend Emily here knows plenty about it. So Emily... What is Lord of the Rings Online? So Lord of the Rings Online has ruined my life. Um, and this is where um, Standing Stone Games, the the producers, the production company behind this game, should definitely pay me. Um, they're not, though, unfortunately. Lord of the Rings Online is an MMO um, based in the works and world of J.R.R. Tolkien, obviously. Um, and it is a, like genuinely the most impressive video game I have ever played. I'm not a huge gamer, so that's maybe not necessarily like the best endorsement of all time. But I have been told by gamers who are far more serious than I that I need to pitch this with the map for Lord of the Rings Online is three times the size the map of World of Warcraft. <laughs> um, but basically, um, the Lord of the Rings Online picks up in um, within, it picks up for the most part um, in the west of Middle Earth, and you follow sort of trail uh, the fellowship as they go on their uh, quest um, and interact with this massive world um basically as if you were a a person living in it um and uh, so far i'm you know i'm only like a half of the way through the content on it and i'm currently hanging out in the enid waith with the gray company who are aragorn's pals the rangers of the north um and i play as a human but you can play as a hobbit a dwarf a high elf a normal elf i don't know what the difference is it's probably for the best if nobody asked me um you can play as a chicken apparently i found this out quite recently um i'm definitely forgetting a class oh you can play as uh, bjornings which are the the bears Mm -hmm. anyways before i get too excited is a phenomenal game um it is uh, a huge time sink very very dangerous loads of fun and also one of the most faithful recreations of the tolkien books and i I say books because i it also includes some you know references to the silmarillion um and the hobbit of course uh you can now play along with bilbo baggins um and i am uh absolutely desperate to have people uh playing because i think it is um Beyond just being a really faithful recreation of the story, it is absolutely beautiful. Um, the music that we use in this podcast comes from uh, the Lord of the Rings Online soundtrack. Um, even though it's a game that was created in 2007, the like actual aesthetic beauty of this game is almost unsurpassed for me, um, except maybe by um, like Breath of the Wild. But again, I'm kind of a rube. Um, basically, everybody should come play this game. Um, you should get on the Laurelin server 
um, and then you should make pals with me. Um, but you should also do all of this before the 30th of November, because if you do, you can use a code called, the, well, the code is LOTROQUEST2021, and you get all of the expansion packs for free, um, bar like two, but those are down to like five pounds, which is, I guess, seven bucks. I'm not sure the exchange rate right now. Anyways, you must play it. You must join. We'll go do like tours and raids or whatever together. Um, and it is really just a one of the most lively, incredible, um, faithful adaptations of the Legendarium I've ever seen. And I recommend it for all. Yeah, no, thank you. You've got me sold. And <laughs> we will be going live a couple weeks before the end of November. So we'll be sure to put that promo code quote code in the tweets uh and like uh maybe uh the sh uh what's it called the podcast description when we go live because i want emily to have plenty of friends to play around in middle earth and i have you know like i mentioned not played this game um but you know i might take a jaunt into it now that i'm i guess officially in the lord of the rings ecosystem of content um i did play the shadows of mortar and shadows of war games uh which i generally enjoyed and had a lot of fun with i know they're not super canonical really but um that is something that maybe down the line i will also uh talk about in the way that emily talked about here so <laughs> and uh emily did mention that you know some of our podcast music choices um have come from the lord of the rings online um we're gonna hit you with so much howard shore music during <laughs> the course of this series uh we figured you know why not introduce some of the other musical elements because the world of Middle Earth is filled with its music and different variations and takes on the music of it. Um, so people have asked already after the first episode. So I wanted to let you know that the intro music is a track called Party in the Shire. And then the outro music is from the House of Tom Bombadil. And uh, starting with this episode, when we go into our token token book analysis, uh, we will also be playing a different segment of the House of Tom Bombadil into that uh, section. But our musical changes might change throughout the series to possibly reflect where we are in the story, and we will keep you updated on those choices as we go. We briefly glanced Mortar during the prologue. The last alliance mounted an offensive on the slopes of Mount Doom, but now we perceive Mortar proper, as it is now, albeit briefly. The camera rotates around a tall black tower, only to pan up to reveal but it is a watchtower for something even more monstrous. This is the first look at Barat Dur, Sauron's stronghold. We see rivers of lava flowing at its feet, skies of fire, and an ashen landscape. If I had only seen the Star Wars prequels before this, I'd be getting real Mustafar vibes. Our time in the Land of Shadow is short-lived, just enough to hear two words screamed out from somewhere deep within the dungeons. Shire, we hear. Baggins! Immediately, we cut to the gates of Minas Morgul, the dead city, where outflows nine black-hooded riders on black horses. The Nazgul have been unleashed. Action shifts back to Gandalf, who has arrived at Pelennor Field surrounding Minas Tirith, the white city of Gondor. Minas Tirith looks directly upon Mordor, and our grey wizard sees Mount Doom erupting, heralding nothing good. Gandalf rummages around the vault of Minas Tirith before finding what he seeks. 
Isildur's account, a scroll the heir of Elendil kept, kept to recount the events of the Last Alliance and the defeat of Sauron. The film recaps some of the prologue, but adding more context this time out, which it will do again later when we meet Elrond in Rivendell. We see Isildur take the One Ring from the fallen Sauron and how it shrinks in his palm to fit his human-sized fingers. Even though Isildur buys it with a great pain, Gandalf reads, it is precious to him, echoing Bilbo and Gollum's words from earlier. And on the ring itself, words in an ancient tongue that fade unless given to the flames. From there, we go back again to the Shire as the, Naz- as the Nazgul have found the land of the hobbits. They are directed to Hobbiton as the hobbits shrink in fear of these inhuman beings. Meanwhile, Frodo and Sam stumble home from a night of frivolity, only for Frodo to notice someone has broken in. It was, of course, Gandalf beating the Nazgul to Bag End. Gandalf requests the ring and throws it into the fire, asking Frodo to tell him what he sees. Nothing, Frodo responds, to Gandalf's relief. For a microsecond. Wait, there are markings, Frodo adds. Markings few can read, Gandalf finishes, as they are the tongue of Mordor. In the common tongue, it says, One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, find them. When Frodo protests that Sauron was destroyed, the ring seems to whisper in response. Frodo then tries to offer the ring to the wizard, who adamantly rejects it. Gandalf is tempted and would want to use the ring for good, but through him, the ring would wield a power too terrible to imagine. Terrible, a word Galadriel will echo later when she's offered the ring. They know the ring can't stay in the Shire, and in the start of Frodo's hero's journey, he determinedly asks, what must I do? Hobbits truly are wonderful creatures in that you can learn everything there is to know about them in a month, but after a hundred of years, they can still surprise you. Throughout, Gandalf is looking over his shoulder, immediately going into a defensive stance at any noise from the outside. This scene is also cut with shots of the Black Rider seemingly closing in on Frodo's location, all of which builds tension and adds a time limit to Frodo and Gandalf's discussion. The rustling of leaves outside scares Gandalf into action, only to find Samwise Gamgee dropping some eaves. He didn't hear much, honest, just something about a magic ring and the end of the world. Gandalf knows exactly what to do with Sam. Add him as the second party member to Frodo's RPG quest. Gandalf prepares them for their journey, saying he hopes to rendezvous with them at the Inn of the Prancing Pony, but first he needs to meet Dracula the White. I mean Saruman the White, the head of his order. Gandalf leaves Frodo with one last warning. Never put the ring on, as it will beckon Sauron's forces to him. And remember, the ring wants to be found. The wizard takes his leave, and Frodo and Sam begin their journey. We see them cross the babbling brooks and open fields that have come to define the Shire, and we even get a Bilbo quote of wisdom that we'll end this segment with. But for all the greens and rivers, night eventually falls, and with it comes the Black Riders. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. So the very first thing that we're going to do in this episode is get into something incredibly nerdy, which is uh, the etymology <laughs> of Baradur. Um, and, and I think this is really, really an important thing for us to do because so much of Tolkien's world is... Uh, basically incumbent on language and linguistic jokes. Um, and 
this one isn't a joke. This one is deathly serious, which is how you know that Tolkien wants us to take this seriously. But nonetheless, it's important to deal with. Um, Barador is in Sindarin, which is the the elvish tongue, the kind of lay language of the elves and also spoken by uh, the aristocracy of Gondor. Um, in Sindarin, it means um, dark fortress or tower. Um, and so you're going to hear like a lot of these, um, well, both of these these phrases actually barad and dur you're going to hear quite a few times um throughout in place names so it's kind of nice and important to like have that in your head as you're going in the black speech the black speech of mordor which is the the speech that shows up on the ring um in tengwar on the ring um it's lugbers um and this is another way in which sort of the the <laughs> the whole world is built upon language um, and how language functions and how people think about language so important to get that out of the way um and the far more important building block of uh, barador is of course the actual building blocks um and the fact that it is um pardon my french fucking massive um it's a 5000 foot tall tower in the film um and is really kind of this horrifying Washington Monument style tower in the middle of uh, Mordor and the Plateau of Gorgoroth. Um, and it is, um, as we kind of get reference to throughout the films, it is not held together by bricks and mortar, but it's held together by um, dark magic in, in this sort of nice little, um, I think, uh, high fantasy element where sometimes horrible things can't be held together by the like the machinations of men or things that are of this realm they're held together by deeply evil shit um and and i think that is just like as we see it for the first time in in the film it is really remarkable for the the sort of horrible insidious unsettling uh, energy it like forces onto us um and, and i think is absolutely unparalleled in terms of spooky movie buildings bar like maybe the tv if you can count a tv as a building in poltergeist i think that's the only other building that has like building or object that has ever made me go oh shit so quickly yeah and i want to give just a point of reference here when emily says it's five thousand feet tall uh for anyone who's watched game of thrones or read a song of ice and fire the wall that separates the north from what lies beyond is estimated to be 700 feet tall so we're talking something that's almost eight times as tall as that um so it's massive and in this like opening shot we get of it like i said we focus in on what we think is just this really tall ass tower you can see it's hundreds of feet down to um the little torch lights on the you know plains of gargaroth or i don't know what the land right at the feet of baradur is but um you can see it's really tall and then it pans up to reveal that no that's just the watchtower and you actually don't even get a glimpse of the top of baradur here at least like the real Baratur. Um, you do, will see it in a Frodo has the ring on later on in the film, but um, this upshot, it just, it disappears somewhere off screen, way up there into the clouds, or I guess the smoke and ash would be what uh, is above the, you know, fields of Mordor. So um, it's really, really incredible. Um, and I think part of the reason we might not see the top is because of a decision they make for these films, and that is to actually have the embodiment of the Ion Sauron on top, um, something that, Again, I hadn't read the books and had no strong connection to it when I fell in love with these movies. I thought it was a pretty deaf choice just because it helps to have like a physical embodiment of the guy you're pretending is 
the you know devil reincarnate or whatever you want to analogize Sauron as. But I've also seen plenty of people think that either it's too heavy handed, it's too spelling it out for people. So I kind of wanted to ask you as you're kind of our local book expert here, how you feel about the visualization of the eye of Sauron atop the tower. Yeah, no. So I like, I get why people get mad about it, but I think it's fine. Um, and I think maybe this is like too much of a display of like, a. um, I, I was once an undergrad in university and I have read like two books before, but like it has kind of that like panopticon feeling to it. Um, and I kind of like that, like in some ways it is comparable, not just to like spooky eye in the sky and eye on fire. Isn't that horrible, but it is also like um, this sense of like surveillance and this like feeling that like you can never escape like, like it is the equivalent to the sun in the sky and in, in how they portray it. Um, and I think that is quite terrifying because it is this like living embodiment of what what the world would look like when shit goes badly. Um, so I get why people are like, I get why people are mad about it. But like, I like I, I just like wholeheartedly disagree. Like, I think is a baller visual in every imaginable way. Um, and I think like because it like or not because but like that it is now so iconic I think really kind of speaks to like it's like efficiency as a symbol because it is just a burning eye like but yeah it evokes so much and so quickly and there are a few things I think um that are really capable of that in the way that this like burning eyeball in the sky is <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah like you said uh it's possibly the most iconographic part of this entire film trilogy um, my friend, poor Quentin, who I've mentioned every episode so far, when I first met him, he just had a shirt on that was just the eye of Sauron. Um, it's an indelible image that's associated and used really well throughout, um, whether it's characters wearing the ring or using a p- palantir. And I think the other thing you mentioned, how they use it as a way to tell story like or s- invoke surveillance. And when like uh, Sam and Frodo are actually moving across Mordor and the eye is kind of checking everything out they actually use that visual to actually help the story in a way it's not just it would be fine if it was just a visual flourish but they actually find a way to really work it into everything that's going on with the story yeah and i think like for me as well like i i I, you know i'm maybe not necessarily talking about this as much as i will like i should be in this podcast because i'm not really a religious scholar um but so much of like the books are are based in um Tolkien's deeply held Catholicism um and and so much of what he does is is really a reference to and I should say not an allegory because Tolkien hates allegories but like so much of it is made in, in reference to the this this like incredibly important part of him um, and I think there's an element of like Sauron and the corruption of Sauron um or the corruption of Myron into Sauron um that is um part of uh like a like like a like an understandable and ingrained fear for people who are religious um and this like sense that like um you can have a fall um and you can fall quite far um but then at the same time that's something like so like natural and normal like a like a human body part like an eye that you know like according to christianity like humans were made in god's image so like an eye is like something that is like godlike or godly in a way and to have that thing be corrupted and to not only be corrupted but to exert this almost godlike power um of almost omnipresence like nigh omnipresence over this world i think is isn't is in more ways than one like a really powerful way of like in 
envisioning this sort of like totality of like feeling and fear. Um, and I think like, you know, obviously people are going to be mad because like, oh, you should be able to just understand symbolism and you shouldn't need to like have it like put, you know, shoved down your throat or whatever spoon fed to you to, to understand it. But I think in other ways, like, you know, we do live in a world where that like sense of like completeness of like religion and like spiritual experience just isn't there anymore in the way that it was for Tolkien writing in 1944. And like, there really is no better way, I think, to to get that out there than this massive fuck off tower with an eye on top. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a lot of Lord of the Rings, because Sauron doesn't take a corporeal form during the events of the story, um, he's represented by various proxies, whether it's Saruman or the ring or Barad-dur itself. Um, so I like that they, they're they able to give all of those accents their own little touch of Sauron in ways that feel like it, you know, visually kind of thematically connects everything together, uh, which I really appreciate. And part of the reason we're really having this discussion of Baratur here is that it is a location we don't really visit except for moments like this or just to kind of set a backdrop of mortar to other stuff, but it's not a location that um, our, our guests, um, <laughs> our characters actually really go to or factors that heavily into like specific plot beats per se, whereas we will have more detailed discussions of Minas Morgul and Mount Doom when Frodo and Sam actually pass through or go through those locations. Yeah. And I think like that, that fact of them not having ever, like not ever going there is I think also really important because it is like, like Barador does effectively act as like a, like a scenic foil to the Shire in almost every imaginable way. Like it, like the Shire, like even when we see it in, in darkness at night, it's still light and bright and airy. And there's still this sort of like humanity innate to like the, the, the atmosphere of it. Um, it's low rolling hills. It is like, I need to emphasize rolling hills. There are no sharp, jaggedy edges in in the environment in the Shire, and we spend a decent amount of time in it, so we we're familiar with it. Um, there's like vibrancy of color and like a sense that it is like lived in and lived in well. And then Barador, which is you know, I, I I mean, it is not like it is lived in, but it really isn't. There is no sense of like humanity or or like um, spirit in it. There's there are like these awful sort of environments, like you know, to borrow Gimli's line about the Emin Wheel, but like the razor sharp cliffs. Um, it's dark, it's dim, it's grim. It feels a bit like what you know people play up like Dickensian settings to be like. <laughs> and so these two things immediately play off each other and kind of you know, as, as foils are meant to do, like, sorry to all of the, like, people who did well in high school English, but, like, for both of these things being juxtapositioned against each other, like, they really strengthen one another um, in a way that I don't think any of the other, like, like dark side environments in, uh, in the films do because they're just not as poignant of an opposite. Yeah, and uh, we're coming into this scene specifically from the Shire when Gandalf leaves uh, Frodo. So it does like visually juxtapose the two locations. And like it's almost like a black box of e evil in the sense that we don't really know what happens inside. Um, and that also helps with the thematic juxtaposition because we know the comings and goings, the ins and outs of the Shire. But everything with its foil is basically unknowable, unknown to us. Um, we can only imagine the worst, which probably even makes it more menacing than it may even be. But it sounds pretty menacing anyways. Um, but now I want to pivot to someone that's a little less menacing than Sauron, <laughs> Samwise Gamgee, as played by Sean Astin. We 
caught him a little bit when we discussed the previous scenes in the last episode, but this is really where he gets his character introduction. Um, so I wanted to focus in him, focus in on him a little bit here because in many ways he is the heart of the story. Um, you know, many people call him the protagonist, and I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer to who the protagonist is. I don't think there's one, but um, he's definitely a character that kind of emerges. You know, he kind of starts out very much in this traditional sidekick role, but you know, he kind of comes into his own. Um, I'm pretty much going to like force you to label the episode where we f- where he fights Shelob as Samwise the Brave because uh, that that scene just absolutely makes my heart sing with how well it's shot and the emotion and all that stuff behind it. But um, I want to kind of get out of the way because I want you to talk about Sean Astin and what he does for the character of Sam here. Oh God, I mean, like. <sighs> I had like a whole, I have a whole, like in my notes right now, I have loads and loads and loads of things written about Sean Austin. And as I'm reading them, all my brain can do right now is process, oh my God, is he good? Um, and I think like in the books, and I'm going to get scared for this, but this is my like firmly held belief and I will not stand, like will not stand for any like, uh, like, um, rejection of my correctness here. Um, Sam is fine. Like, Sam is fine. Like, Sam has a really great story, and, like, it is, like, a lovely thing to read, and as a character, he's really lovely, Um, but in a lot of ways, he's kind of hampered by, like, the, like, by the innate Englishness of it. Like, I, like this is going to sound needlessly <laughs> cruel, but, like, there is, like, a sort of emotional stiltedness to, to Sam, Um, and some of that is, like, based on, like, the, like, class politics inherent to it, but, like, it's very hard for me, at least, to kind of get fully on board with Sam in the way I get on board with, like, a lot of the other characters and a lot of the other hobbits. Not so for Sean Astin, Sam. Um, he, he really plays the hell out of him, and I think is, is probably, for me, the best and most capable actor in the series bar Ian McKellen um, just for the amount of work that he does because I think like the unfortunate reality with Sam as a character and I think that especially in the films is that if he wasn't played right he could be quite a dull kind of like cheap laugh sidekick character um, and I think you kind of get that in the start, like as they're setting him up as like, oh, he's too scared to talk to Rosie Cotton. He's like, you know, he's kind of a bit too dumb to like lie his way out of this like problem with Gandalf. Um, but Sean Astin really takes it from like, oh, traditional sidekick to, like you say, the 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 true like emotional heart of this film. Um, and, and in so many ways, the kind of um, pull of like like if if Billy Boyd right throughout these films is making the faces we as the audience should be making um Sam is making the faces like we should want to be making like he is the character that we should all want to one day grow up to be um and and that is so contingent on how like masterfully Sean Astin plays him um and it like I really am not a huge hobbit fan generally but like oh my god Sean Astin Sam means so much to me <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think you raised a really important point there about how much of selling the entire films, but especially the, you know, Frodo, Sam, Gollum storyline is contingent on Sean Astin, because with Gandalf and with the Aragorn stuff, there's just so much like awesome, awesome stuff really happening in terms of action, um, the bigger set pieces like Helm's Deep or, you know, the Battle of Pelennor Fields, all that kind of stuff. But with Sam, Frodo, and Gollum, it's often just two and three-hander scenes. And you have to think about that uh, 
what's it called? Elijah Wood and Sean Astin are like at the forefront of having to work with a fully motion capture performance. Um, so there's just a lot more variables, a lot like less innate bad acidness for lack of a better uh, word in their story, at least until they get to like Shelob and Mina Smorgel and stuff. Um, no disrespect to Faramir, who I love and I know is your favorite, but um, you know, it's just that you could see a version of these movies where the story kind of falls apart because that half of the story didn't keep up with everything that's happening with the ants or with Gandalf or Aragorn, you know, flipping Gimli over the bridge and causeway and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it really is important. And a lot of that is driven by character um, and performance as opposed to those big fancy set pieces. And, um, you know, the defining characteristic of Sam, I don't want to say the defining, but in a way, it's just his loyalty to Frodo. And the important thing is that every film's climax, The Fellowship, The Two Towers and The Return of the King, all specifically center on Sam's loyalty to uh, Frodo. Like that's so intimately wrapped up in the film's finish. And I think is part of the reason when we talk about these films being warm and comforting and, you know, feeling like a good hug, it's a lot because of that. And because Sean Astin is able to make all those moments actually feel earned and like, not just like, you know, saccharine or overly sentimental stuff that, you know, lesser films would do. Yeah. And I think this is like, like that is like the multi-dimensional, multi-dimensionality, holy cow, if I could learn to speak, mm-hmm. uh, multi-dimensionality of like Sean Astin's portrayal. Um, and it's, and it's hard, I think, um, to get that sort of like depth and nuance in the characters, um, just because there's so much going on in these films and there's really not like, you know, I'm going to say this because I always want more, but like, there's really not enough time to like get into the like depth that, that the books can get into because the books are 1300 pages long. Um, and one of the things for me that I think really sums up like Sean Astin's portrayal um, is actually like a, a, a relationship between the, the film and the books. Um, and in the books, when Sam is tempted by the ring, he's tempted with the promises of two things. Um, one, which is Middle Earth transformed into a beautiful, vibrant, verdant garden. Um, which is sort of what we expect of Sam. Like, of course, he's gardener. That's his whole shtick. The other thing is a flaming sword. That is so badass, it's not even funny. And it would be so easy to overlook that element of Sam's character if you only wanted to play up the gardener shtick. But Sean Astin doesn't. Like, Sean Astin really portrays a Sam that I would believe could be tempted by the promise of a flaming sword. Um, and it's, you know, it's because he wants to use that flaming sword to to protect Frodo. And and I genuinely believe that 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 our Sam in the films would do that. And I think that really gets to this like this like strength of character. Um that you know it it didn't have to be there like the movie would have still the movies would have still been absolutely excellent if sam were a bit dull i guess um but he just really goes the the extra mile and and nails that um and it really it just means so much to me because like i think like sam is just who we all deserve to get a chance to be when we grow up Yeah, absolutely. And boy, I will have a lot of feelings to share about Sam when we get to his later stuff in Two Towers and Return of the King. So excited for that. Uh, but we do, I do want to hit on just some of like the fun, you know, smaller 
eccentricities or just like character beats surrounding Sam. Um, the first is how often he references his dad, uh, the old gaffer, as he's most uh, commonly referred to in the films. I believe his name is Hamfast, uh, as given in the books. Um, and he's kind of just used as a punchline. I don't even know if the old gaffer shows up in the extended editions. I don't quite have those memorized. Um, but it is something that even when he's uh, taking on the orcs of Kirith Ungol, he's like, you know, that one's for my old gaffer and stuff, shouting it as he knocks orcs off the spiral staircase. So um, it's just kind of fun that, you know, he's always thinking, wow, I wish my dad was here or my dad would love this. He's a total dad guy, I guess. <laughs> It, it is because I think it's like, um, and I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about Faramir because, like, first I'll depress everybody, but second, we've got two movies to do that. But like, Sam does provide this like really like interesting alternative to like the other dads in the film who are all, if if they are present at all, they like are garbage. Um, and like the most prominent of these is obviously like Denethor and Faramir and their relationship there. And this sort of like Faramir does like stupid and bad shit because he wants to appease his dad. Whereas Sam does like noble and brilliant stuff because he wants to like be on side with his old man. And I think that is like a really lovely and like, like beautiful portrayal of like love and like, like men and like family relationships that like, you know, we'll probably get into this a little bit more and once we actually like amass the fellowship. But like Sam really sets the foundation for like this notion that like men can be open about like the ways that they like love people and the ways that they like love other men, either through like Sam's love for Frodo or like his love for his dad. And that is just like I I, I just love it. I love Sam so much. <laughs> And uh, another thing that Sam loves is the elves, uh, which uh, we kind of get referenced obliquely uh, in these movies where he's just like super excited to go to Rivendell. Um, and uh, there is a scene in the extended where the passing of the elves through um, the area surrounding the Shire or in the Shire, whatever it is, you'll know that answer, uh, Emily. I don't off the top of my head. Um, but he is very fascinated with the elves, which again, we've talked about how hobbits are not often interested in things that aren't about the Shire life day to day. So uh, what do you think about Sam's fascination with the elves? Yeah. So I actually think this is really like clever filmmaking. Um, cause, cause Sam does have like a professed interest and in love in, uh, of the elves in the books, but it's actually like Frodo who's more closely associated with them. Like Frodo speaks Sindarin. Um, like Frodo has like a lot of conversations with the elves. And um, after they go to Lothlorien, like Sam is very much like, holy shit, Gladriel rocks. Um, but in the movies, they like definitely set Sam up um, as like the elf elf friend to steal uh, Bilbo's title there. <laughs> um, and the reason they're doing it, I think, um, is, is to kind of tether like... Um, Sam to like this romantic and 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 the like sense of the artistic movement um notion of like uh, like a person like romantic sensibilities um because the elves and without getting too much into like the deep lore of this um the elves are like inextricably tethered to like the fate of middle earth which is why that they're they're slightly more in tune with nature um and and as the movie really goes out of its way to show um where elves dwell nature tends to look better and tends to be healthier and better cared for. And these two things go are linked really closely. And Sam is a kind of lay version of that. Like he, he is a gardener. Um, and so he cares for and tends for the earth just as much as he cares for and tends for his, his, his pals, um, and Frodo, um, and put a big asterisk asterisk there as to what that relationship is. Um, but 
there is the sense that by linking these two things, you're you're linking the sort of like high romance of like duty to the earth writ large to the kind of low romance of, of care for the earth around you. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's just a, like a real masterstroke of filmmaking there. And hats off to Pete and co for that one. Yeah. And, uh, and not just uh, the earth, but also like the tools that you use, because you see Sam's very into like elven rope um, and things like that. So like things that help people build and, you know, tend to the earth. I know you don't use ropes to like plant trees or anything, or maybe you do. I've never planted a tree in my life, but uh, you know, it's like, you see that there's a very, there's some kind of simpatico between Sam and the elves in terms of their appreciation for like labor and the earth and nature, like you said. So I really like that. Uh, next, uh, you know, Sam's the cook of the group. And uh, one thing that I really like that they do throughout these is he actually fights with a frying pan, uh, which is just, you know, kind of goofy. I'm pretty sure he does that in the books. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it just, it feels so earnest in a way that I can't really describe it in any other way. And it's like when he's hitting people with the frying pan, it's like, oh, I'm getting the hang of this. This is an easy way to fight for me. <laughs> um, he's just so good with his cast iron skillet, I assume it is. But it's just one of those nice little flourishes. It makes for some good comedic relief at various points, especially in the darkness of Moria. Um, but also it's just, it it's very fitting to the character. And I, I just, anytime that they're able to just like show character through choices like that, uh, through a visual or kind of a prop choice, um, it's always gets me excited. Yeah. And right. It's like Sam is like carrying this little bit of home and, and like in carrying this little bit of home, like the Shire with him, he is like the home away from home for everybody. And like, even when he's doing like these horrible acts of violence, like I cannot imagine getting smacked by a cast iron skillet. I don't even want to think about how painful that is. I would take uh, like a sword 10 times out of 10 on that one. Um, like even when he's doing that, he's still doing it in a way that like reminds us that like home and comfort isn't as far away as it seems. Um, like, I, like, oh, Sam is just like the most, I think the most masterfully like adapted character in, in this trilogy, really. And so, and I, and so I think like part and parcel of this, like, uh, Sam not being, um, as aggressive with his weaponry, like he uses something that he's brought from home. He's not using like the, the tools of men because like swords aren't necessarily a thing in the Shire. He's using the frying pan and this sets him up as a defensive character. He's fighting, um, only because he has to. And oh my God, the restraint I am showing right now and not referencing Faramir's bright sword speech and the books. Um, I deserve like a Nobel Peace Prize for this. Um, anyways, um, Sam is like a defensive character. He shows up to defend people and does not necessarily like fight willingly or for the 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 joy and bloodlust of fighting um and um <laughs> in some ways i think like this plays into like how surprising it is when he kind of does go on the offensive um for example in in uh the scene where he's caught snooping um he kind of struggles and falters to lie because he's like so inherently a like a good character he's just not a good bullshitter i um, mean he tells gandalf that you know he hasn't been listening in um in the books he's got this brilliant line where um gandalf is like are you eavesdropping and sam is like no i'm not eavesdropping because bag end has no eaves um, which is like just like a brilliant like commentary on on like architecture and Sam is really pulling that one out there but I think is also like a sign of like how like when he is cornered like Sam can really like duke it out with the best of them um but he only does it when he's forced to do it he's not doing it for shits and giggles um and like what like a what a tremendous like testament of of character really 
Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I've never thought about the phrase eavesdropping before. So when uh, Sam kind of deconstructed and I've been dropping no eaves was the first time I really thought about that word as something other than just what it means in combination, I guess, or as the compound word. So uh, very neat. The last thing I want to touch on in our analysis section, I'm going to flex a little bit of my podcast Sans Frontieres Metal Gear Solid uh, discourse here. Um, because the the scene between Gandalf and Frodo acts as a final knowledge check. And I'm going to talk about the Metal Gear analogy here. Um, the Metal Gear games have very idiosyncratic controls. Like, they don't handle like other games. So usually very early on, within the first half an hour of each game, um, you're basically put into some kind of shootout scenario where, where it's basically like, you need to know how to shoot a gun and do certain maneuvers if you wish to complete this game. Um, if you cannot get past this section, um, you are not yet ready to play the rest of this game. And I like how this movie, um, for all the you know barriers to entry we talked about on in our intro episode with world building and lore and all this and that, um, basically has this Gandalf and Frodo scene on the dinner table where they're like, we are going to recap everything we've taught you about Mordor, Sauron, the One Ring, Mount Doom, etc., just so you're like absolutely crystal clear on what the stakes are, um, what the mechanics of this world are, because once, you know, Frodo and Sam leave the Shire, it's basically kind of adventure time. Um, they're instantly going to be hounded by the Black Riders, um, then they're going to meet up with Strider, then it's off to the Elves, and then the Fellowship. So like the adventure really kicks off here, so they kind of have this knowledge check just to make sure it's like you are clear on the most basic parts of this story, so at least the rest of what comes after is not going to be like, wait, what is that again? I don't quite catch that. Um, so I really like that. And I'm sorry that I have to use a video game analogy to get that point across, but it was just so stark in how how well they hammer home those points um, so that the audience knows exactly what's going on because they've been throwing a lot of world building and proper nouns at you in this first half hour to 40 minutes. Um, so it's good to just be clear on everything before you actually set out for the journey. Yeah, and I think this is like uh, like a really good way of doing it as well because like as you like build knowledge normally build and like transfuse knowledge, a lot of it is having to like repeat it over and over and over again and teach it to other people. And so like Frodo is having to repeat this this horrible awful story quite a bit. Um and that is like compounding the like imminent trauma for him and the more like each time he has to like go through the history of this the spookier and more horrifying it gets. So like, it absolutely is like a level check and, and, and video games because it's like, welcome to the real world, dude, you are never going to come back the same again. And like each bit, like bit of knowledge that might have seemed slightly more benign than it did before is going to get worse each time you hear it. Pivoting over to our analysis of cinematography and score and the general film craft. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about um, the shots of Barat-Dur, the way the camera kind of hovers around the smaller watchtower before uh, unveiling the more monstrous large tower, the core tower, whatever it's called. Um, but we want to mention that uh, this was kind of done using some traditional film effects where they built um, uh, basically a miniature Barat-Dur, but it was 25 feet high. Um, so what they ended up calling this, as well as the ones for Orthanc and Minas Tirith, are bigatures because just you know, 25 foot high, that's taller than like three men or four men or four people, sorry. Uh, so like, you know, the word bigature kind of came out of the production of this, but it harkens back to stuff that's been, you know, happening from like Star Wars 1977 to stuff that Stanley Kubrick was doing in 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, just using like 
um, you know, sets and figurines and toys to, you know, make these larger than life uh, places and settings and locations come to life. Yeah. And I think this is like one of the really incredible things, because I think for me, like this, like practicality of creating these these sets and these well i guess props you'd have to create anyways but creating these sets like it, 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 like in hard copy um is to me basically the equivalent of like tolkien creating um a, a language like a homegrown language for the the story these two things function in the same way to like build up and reinforce the reality of the story they're telling um and i'm like i'm trying to be careful to not knock like cg too much because i think cg is like a really powerful and important tool and i think like a lot of the like cinematic discourse right now being like all cg is garbage is like missing the point in a lot of ways um and i think it is actually quite important to mention that like as like this is like a practical set like it is it is a hard built set um it is also like um emphasized and and like illuminated not in the lighting sense but like made made better and made grander and more scary through the use of cg um and these two things in in marriage and like a happy and content marriage like work together to really build out this world in an effective and exciting way and i think that really puts it in the sort of like uh like like providence line the like line of ownership of as you say like star wars um and everything kubrick does um and i think that is um a slightly under underrated element of why these movies are so brilliant no strong agree strong agree and then um i want to go to a shot just a little bit later when gandalf arrives at minas tirith or the fields of pelinor the pelinor field sorry um we get an almost split screen effect where he's kind of able to look at both Minas Tirith and Mordor um, kind of, you know, they kind of take up each one half of the screen on the right is Minas Tirith where it's, you know, the white city it's bast in sunlight. Um, and then, you know, to the left on the left side of the screen are the mountains and mountain doom. It's just a veil of black and shadow at the red sky. Uh, mountain doom is erupting. Um, it just kind of shows this great duality of, whether it's good versus evil, whether it's, um, you know, Gandalf, who's going to become Gandalf the White later on versus, you know, Sauron, whether it's Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul, kind of two cities that are uh, inextricably tied by story and history that we'll get into in some later episode. Um, I really do like um, the split screen effect that they do here because we're not going to get a lot on Gondor and what we get on Gondor in this uh, in this film specifically isn't very flattering to it. So I am going to just shut the F up and let Emily talk about that for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm going to like censor myself and I'm, I'm, I'm well, okay, I won't hugely censor myself, but I'm going to start off by saying I actually think like the this element is one of my favorite changes to Gondor. I shouldn't say favorite because I don't have many changes that I like about things that they do to Gondor in these films. And um, I think it's a brilliant decision. Um, because in the books, uh, Minas Morgul, Minas Ethel is not uh, visible from um, from from Minas Tirith. Um, there's there is like a sense that like um, Mount Doom and Mordor are like rumbling in the distance, but you don't really get the visual on them from Minas Tirith in, in the way that you do in in the films. And I think that's really important because, like as you say, Gondor really doesn't get like a sympathetic portrayal. Um, it makes the fight that they have feel so much more viscerally terrifying um, because they really are on Mordor's front door in, or rather Mordor is on their front door in um, the films. Um, and it really gives a sense of like presence and 
panic um, and like necessary and justifiable panic um, that you don't necessarily get in the books where like there is like a good 60 miles between um, Minas Tirith and, and Minas Ethel, Minas Morgul, which is like the, the, the sort of front edge of uh, Mordor and everything else is, you know, hundreds of miles beyond that. Um, giving that closeness um, really makes, I think in a lot of ways, it really makes Boromir's later desperation to get to the ring so much more understandable because if you wake up every morning and have to look at that, you also would be scared out of your mind. Um, so I think that's brilliant. Um, it's just a shame and a frustration for me that that is immediately followed up with one of my least favorite um, little changes to to Gondor and Minas Tirith and the films, which is the messiest shit archives that Gandalf has to rifle through. Um, and, and it's my least favorite, um, for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of which is that, like, uh, Gondor and Minas Tirith are meant to be, like, these remarkable sites of learning, um, even though, like, Faramir in the books kind of complains that, like, they're not doing as much learning as possible, that's just because he's a huge, annoying nerd, um, and can't help himself from complaining about everything, um, but, like, Minas Tirith and, and Gondor writ large are, like, very, very important sites of learning, but they're also, like, very, very important historical and archival sites because they basically hold the history of men that has like been willingly and like purposefully forgotten by the elves and like incidentally and uh mortifyingly embarrassingly forgotten by like the Arnarim, the like northern the northern dunedain aragorn's people um minas Tirith would never have an archive that was that messy there like there's just no way and, and in fact um in the council of Elrond in the books when Gandalf is recounting how he came across Isildur's account, he basically has to own to the fact that, you know, he, he refused to go to Minas Tirith for 17 years because he has a bit of a grudge against the men generally, but also Minas Tirith more specifically. Um, and when he gets there after 17 years of putting it off, it's really easy for him to find this account. It takes him basically no effort. Um, and, and the sort of subtext here is if if he hadn't been so pretentious about dealing with the men, his job would have been a lot easier and they would have all saved a lot of time. Um, the movie, you know, and it's, I think, probably justifiable, justifiable desperation to make Gandalf seem not as much of a prick as he is, um, portrays like the archive at Minas Tirith as like this mess. Um, and I think for me, that is like a connection that is like largely inex inextricable to um, the Soviet archives and like the, the narrative around like the Soviet archives after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and this sense that like they are messy and they are disorganized and they are unruly because they're hiding something and they're fundamentally evil and like these things that like Western scholars can't get to, they can't get to because there is like there is something deeply evil and bad about these things. And I think that like, you know, inadvertently or not is the sort of image that's being evoked. And I recognize that this is probably skewed by me being like a horrible, <laughs> like miserable historian who thinks too hard about these things. Um, but that is something that like, when I watch this, I can't not see it in that archive scene. And I, and I find it quite frustrating because of the implications it makes about Gondor, which I think are like unfair and uh, largely unjustifiable implications. Gondor rocks. The haters can go do one. Gandalf as well. They would never have had a messy archive. Absolutely not. Um, but anyways, but I'll balance this and be nice and like happy by saying that like I do really, really deeply appreciate that like they do have Minas Tirith in the shadow of Mordor because 
everything else the characters do from here on out in, in terms of their relationship to Gondor like makes a lot more sense because they're scared witless. They are literally living a horror movie. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I will now take a deep breath and and stop complaining about Gondor, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I totally, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Um, I can see the decision here also possibly just being they didn't put as much thought as we are putting into it right now. Um, it kind of fits in with Galadriel's prologue about how knowledge was passing out of all memory. And that kind of happens when knowledge is not retained, uh, which, you know, I know Gondor in the book absolutely is retaining that knowledge. We've talked about Faramir quite a bit already. Um, and I also think it just like, there's just something about, disheveled libraries or the burning of libraries that's just always kind of a plot signifier um whether it's like historical and the burning of the library in alexandria um i even think about you know i'm gonna always come back to a song of ice and fire and game of thrones um very early on if you remember there's an assassination attempt on bran stark's life um and you know rob stark is drawn away from his brother because someone lights a fire in the winterfell libraries and i'm sure the winterfell libraries had a bunch of knowledge about say the white walkers and you know the oncoming winter um and there's always it's a very literary trope that um right before or during apocalypses that any kind of center of knowledge comes under attack so i don't think that was the actual directorial intent in um the fellowship of the ring and this scene we're talking about but that's kind of how if if i had to apologize for the film those are kind of the points i would make for it yeah for sure and like and i do think this is like this is one of these things where like in my ongoing relationship or like my ongoing fight with myself between like the part of me that is like an unrepentant Gondor nationalist and the part of me that loves these films like that is also sort of the conclusion I come to which is that like somewhere someone has to represent like the hubris and the fall of men and they can't do it with Aragorn's people even though it is actually Aragorn's people in the book that represent the hubris and fall of men because that would weaken Aragorn and like We'll get into this more later, but like it's it's fair enough to have like the Gondor folk take the hit in in the films because uh, functionally someone has to do it. It's just it just makes me sad that it's the people that I like and not Aragorn's people who I hate. <laughs> yeah, and I think to that point, real quick, is at no point during these scenes do they say Gondor or make it clear it's Gondor. I very much think it's supposed to stand in. This is the last realm of men. Um, I think it's supposed to have that stand in and it shouldn't be, like I said, they don't even use the word Gondor, I think, until they get to uh, Rivendell in, in this film. Um, I'll keep track of that. I'm not actually 100% sure about that. But um, so, yeah, I, I think that's very much it's supposed to be a stand in for uh, the kingdom of men more so than specifically Gondor. Yeah, for sure. The- and I think that is like a big thing as well is like there there is a sense that like a lot of these like unnecessarily a lot of these things like these divisions get um alighted because there's just not the time or the space um although um as i was reading some of the like early production notes i think if peter jackson had gotten his way vis-a-vis the production companies there may have been a little bit more space to do it and uh you know there are obviously like a lot of other reasons for why the thing i'm about to say is true and necessary but this is why we have to overthrow capitalism because we'll get better films yes yes we will uh, the next shot I wanted to highlight was when Frodo and Gandalf are reading the markings on the One Ring. Um, not something that like we need to really sit here and analyze, but I really love the fact that when you can see um, the black script or is, whatever it is on the ring itself, um, the actual text is reflected back onto Frodo's face, which is just kind of a nice effect. And it shows just how, I don't know, 
I don't want to use luminous because I have a very positive association with luminous and Yoda. Um, mm-hmm. But it just like the kind of power that's radiating from the ring, the fact that it's reflecting on Frodo's face. Of course, it could also be taken as some kind of visual foreshadowing given what uh, Frodo's you know plot is that he's going to be going into the fires of Mount Doom, that he's going to be tempted by the ring at the very last moments. All of that stuff can be read into that one shot. But I just like it, it gives it a certain otherworldliness or some kind of, you know, again, a sense of power that's just waiting to uh, burst out of the physical enclosure that is just the one ring. Yeah. And like, what a, like a woof flex for their like text as well. Sorry. I'm like a theater person by training. I don't know if you call them text on screen. Anyways, what flex for their like lighting and like computer graphics people that they were able to do that and make it look so natural. Like that is such like one of these small little things where they are like absolutely stunting on everybody else in the industry. And like, we all benefit for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing I wanted to mention, and this again, not required, really requiring a lot of analysis, but we mentioned that a lot of the score for uh, the Lord of the Rings is especially like those light motifs associated with our heroes and positive, you know, positive characters are a lot of strings, horns, woodwinds, um, things like that. Um, but when the Nazgul and their horses are really charging through the Shire, you get a lot more bass and drum, um, which I only really noticed because of how my cats reacted to that scene when I was watching it, because they just go crazy when there's a lot of bass and drum. Um, but it also made me start thinking about Moria, um, because that's the other part of this film where we get a lot of bass and drum, and that's usually associated with oncoming danger. Um, so I really like how they're kind of low low key setting that up i don't know if i would call it exactly foreshadowing but it definitely has that vibe um and then the next thing i wanted to hit on real quick was we talked about how um in the earlier couple of scenes how uh, the camera angle and upshots and downshots are used to kind of convey power or power dynamics between characters One thing I really started noticing this time around is the difference in camera angle when it's Gandalf and Frodo versus Gandalf and Sam, at least initially, Um, because we're very much introduced to Frodo and Gandalf, not necessarily as equals in terms of power, but they view their friendship as equals. Um, And like, obviously, Frodo has spent a lot more time in the world of wizards and elves, at least thinking and communicating with them than Sam has. Um, But when, you know, Gandalf busts Sam dropping his eaves, we return to more of those traditional up shot downshot stuff we were talking about last episode because we haven't had that kind of leveling of friendship with Sam and Gandalf that we'll have, you know, that'll kind of develop as the fellowship goes on. Yeah. And and I think that is one of the other things that for me is really fascinating because like, I think Gandalf is portrayed so intimidatingly and on purpose, at least in terms of, um, of Sam and I guess a lot of the other characters at first. Um, And it is like a, to an enormous credit for Ian McKellen that despite kind of like the 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 technical elements of this film not working against him as such but like working against his like relatability that even then he is still like friendly wizard even when he's not and we're totally willing to like let him go back to kind of being his like cheerful pipe smoking whistling self right after um, and it is this like wonderful kind of like good important and helpful conflict between like what the like tech is doing and what the actors are doing that i think is just just lovely <laughs> oh so so much agreement there Um, And then I want to just highlight a couple shots as Frodo and Sam set out just because they kind of stick in my mind. Um, The first is the first shot after they leave Bag End, which is basically a silhouette shot where Sam, Frodo and Gandalf are, you know, just 
black silhouettes on the screen with a new dawn rising above. Um, it's just a great, I love silhouettes. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's just <laughs> something I personally love. And then, you know, po- possibly the most memed moment out of this uh, segment of scenes is when uh, Sam says, you know, if I take another step, it'll be the furthest I've ever been from home. Um, I just really like the composition of the scene uh, because there's a scarecrow like right in screen center and there's three crows on it, one on each arm and one on top of its head. Um, I don't know what about it, whether it's the symmetry or... Again, I don't really can't really describe why I like this shot. Um, I think this might be one of those like quote unquote goof shots where there might be like a car somewhere deep in the background of this shot as well. Um, like I've seen that in one of those, you know, nine goofs from the Fellowship of the Ring posts. Um, but I just I really like these shots. And it is really we're about to leave the Shire, but the Shire means so much to the story as a place to preserve, as a like a synecdoche for nature writ large or Middle Earth. Uh, we talked about this in-depth last episode, so I'm not going to go over it. So they really do take some time to really revel in the Shire before we really leave it, which we really happens in the next episode or in a couple episodes from now. Um, but I really like how they give us those last few minutes to linger um, there. Yeah, and I think it's such a statement about, like, Sam's character as well. Like, I mean, obviously this is, like, the literal text, but, like, the fact that, like, his the, like absolute outer limit of places he's been in his life is still somewhere that feels so safe um i like it it does like i i look at that shot um, and i like it just is like massive nostalgia power for me like it really does make me miss like and i and i do not usually miss virginia but it does make me like miss virginia in the autumn um and like there there is that sort of like invocation of like nicer sweeter happier times um and for sam to then be like looking at that like beauty and be like oh, holy shit, what is about to happen to me? Like, as I think, like, such a lovely little, lovely little character moment there. Um, And then a couple quick notes on the score. And uh, since we last recorded episode two, I was pointed to a different podcast called The Soundtrack Show. Um, which goes in depth on uh, film scores and they had a three-parter on the fellowship of the ring. So now I have much better tools and words <laughs> to describe the score as we go forward. Um, I really recommend you check that out. And a lot of that is based on a book specifically about the score of the Lord of the Rings. I think that was written by Doug Adams. Um, but we played in the recap segment with essentially the light motif for the, for Barak Dur, for Mordor. It's known as the evil of the ring, uh, light motif. And it's basically a variation of the main ring light motif we talked about in episode one. Um, but it kind of plays up certain notes. So it definitely gives it a more evil and menacing note. Um, and then. One thing that I found really cool was uh, the Nazgul theme, which we hear as kind of a Gregorian chant where it's like, oh, okay, I'm not going to do it again. Remember, I'm tone deaf. Um, but apparently um, that main ring light, light motif, the da, 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 whatever, you know what it is. Sorry. Um, but apparently that's nine notes, you know, nine notes, which is also the number of Nazgul and number of fellowship people. Um, but when the Nazgul are unleashed or when there's Nazgul scenes and they have that Gregorian chanting Nazgul light motif, it's actually all nine notes of that ring theme played at once, played as a chord, um, which kind of gives it that, I don't know. I don't know what it gives it, but it's, I just think that's very cool where form imitates function or function imitates form. You see the very nitty gritty of music theory and what chords and notes are being chosen are actually kind of reflective of the story and theme. And I, I just geek out on that, even though I am not really the most astute at making those observations or communicating them to you. 
I mean that though, like I think this is one of these brilliant things about the 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 score for this in general is that like it kind of makes music nerds of, of us all. Um, and <laughs> I think like you know not to get like too like soppy or whatever, but I think like it really does get to like the like incredible nature of like music as a like a tool for storytelling. Um, because it's like not only is it making us think about like as you talk about with like the Nazgul and the the drum and the the drum and bass of their the uh their horses' hooves, but um as like using that as like a way to like set the scene, but like using these chords as a way to like communicate something symbolic about the story as well is just like I mean like come on like like that is just so good, um and I think like for the fact that it makes us think about that and think about how we are made to feel by this music. Like it also kind of makes us all a little bit smarter for it, which is something I kind of like miss in, in, in cinema and mainstream cinema. Um, so cheers to Howard Shore on that one. All right, so on to our last segment, our token token book analysis. And um, I'll, I'll give way to Emily a lot in this section, as I always will. Um, but the first thing I wanted to highlight was that a lot of the Frodo and Gandalf dialogue we get here over uh, Bilbo's dinner table is actually given uh, during the scenes in Moria, uh, where Gandalf and Frodo chat, especially all the stuff as it relates to Gollum. Um, so I wanted to uh, get your opinion on uh, those kind of scenes and kind of the way they move dialogue here. Um, I think, again, part of it is what I talked about earlier, front-loading it so you can be crystal clear on certain plot mechanics. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, decision as well. Yeah, for sure. I think you're like absolutely spot on with like, you know, you, you really need to get as much of this exposition done as possible before you get into the rest of it. Otherwise, it's just going to be totally incomprehensible. Um, but I also think there's sort of like a uh, like a, a character element. And I'm going to keep coming back to this. And like, I hope by now my like anti Gandalf grudge is clear. But if not, I will bore you all to death with how much I dislike Gandalf over the next however many episodes. Um, but part of like the reason why they have um, done this is because it's necessary for making um, Gandalf seem a little bit more put together than he really is and a little bit more in control of it all. Um, and so like, there's this element of like, if he's able to like give all of this information to, to Frodo and effectively to us quite quickly after the plot kicks off, it doesn't feel like he's trailing behind quite as much as he really is in, in the books. Um, and so that is like a, like a nice little character renovation for him. Um, the, like, as much as I don't like book Gandalf is like certainly necessary for, for making movie Gandalf, like as trustworthy and like, as like, um, likable as he is, um, but then I think there's also this element of like, especially with like the not talking about Gollum in particular, um, and to give context to this, Gollum is not something like a like a like a character or figure that is unknown in the Shire. And um, at one point in the books, and I'm gonna say it's Pippin, but it's almost certainly now that I've said that gonna actually have been Mary. Um, either one of them is able to give an impression having never met Gollum that is so spot on that people start to get scared by it. Um, and the obvious implication of that is that Bilbo has told the story of Gollum um, and has been able to continue making, you know, like doing Gollum voice for so long that like 
he has almost Gollum has almost become real to these hobbits even though they've never met him and will, well should have never had any interaction with him um and you can't really convey that in the movies i think without interrupting this like paradisal nature of the shire um withholding that until you get to moria kind of implies that like the danger exists out with the shire and only out with the Shire. Um, and so the information about the ring and the news of the ring is really the first taint against the Shire that happens. Um, and it's the first time that like this horrible evil stuff comes to the Shire. Um, and I think that is like a that is like a really important kind of decision for um how to present information and how to kind of protect the sanctity of the Shire in in a way, if that makes sense. Oh, very much so. That's wild. I actually have never, never thought about it in those terms. But yeah, that's, that's actually really perfect. Um, and I think that actually is a nice pivot point as we talk about withholding information at certain points of the film is that in the books, uh, Gandalf says right here in this moment that it, the ring needs to be taken to Mordor to be destroyed. Uh, but this is actually a piece of knowledge we don't get until we get to Elrond in the film. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, so this is like, this is interesting because I think um, Gandalf gets like a like a level up in in the films and like it is probably necessary. Um, in some ways, I think, and I'm, this isn't me complaining about like Elrond. Like I like I think movie Elrond is really good and I like Hugo Weaving. But in some ways, like Elrond in the movies is kind of made like lesser and and weaker by his characterization. Um, and so like you know some of the first scenes that we get with him are him being like really bitchy and bitter about the Ben. Um, which isn't really something that he does in uh, the books. Um, and a huge part of that reason is because like he's around half elven. Um, he was given the choice between being um, a man, you know, taking the, the, the sort of fate of men and, and dying or taking the fate of the elves and getting to go to Valinor and having his like fate be like eternally connected to, to the fate of um, Arda, uh, like Middle Earth. Um, and of course, his brother Elros, who takes the the fate of men um, and, and is therefore a man, um, also becomes like the king of Numenor. And so, like in the books, like Elrond's relationship to men is very, very close, um, and um, and there's not really like a sense of animosity between Elrond and the men folk um, as such, um, especially given that he he shelters and fosters Aragorn for so long. In the movies, he definitely gets to play up this element of the elves all think that uh, men are idiots and fools and hubristic and and really bad, and and so he does kind of take that like wisdom hit. His 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 points in uh his wisdom points in this are much much lower than they are in um in, in the books, um and Gandalf's as a consequence are are like much higher. Um, but I think it is like it is quite interesting to to play it like that, um, because it plays in, into in a sense this this position that the film takes that there can only be like a, a few good men um, <laughs> or a few good characters, and it is like necessary to weaken the like stature of all of the other characters um, to to portray this like goodliness of the few good ones. Um, and Gandalf is, of course, one of these. Aragorn is the other. Um, Theoden, actually, surprisingly, is one of them. Um, so yeah, so so taking that sort of like foresight away from Elrond and giving it to Gandalf plays that function in a really interesting way, but also, I think, cements the divide between elves and men in a way that 
isn't in the books, but is like quite dramatically effective. Yeah, very much so. Um, a couple other things I want to mention here, um, but uh, me and Emily have kind of discussed off off mic uh, how we might handle some of this stuff, so we might be brief. Um, the first is uh, we get a little talk in the books here about Sauron kind of reemerging in Mirkwood in Dol Guldur, which is something we actually see in uh, the Hobbit films, which, you know, I don't know if it's God willing or God damning. We will probably cover to some extent or at least discuss. Um, but uh, that is something that we get here. But there's something that the film can just completely elide um, because we don't have as a film going audience to worry about any baggage from um, The Hobbit or anything preceding the story other than as, as been told to us in Galadriel's prologue. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I was going to like make like a, I don't know, like a point about the books. But what I'm actually going to say is right now in Lord of the Rings Online, I am playing the Mirkwood region um, and playing Dol Guldur. And if you get on board with Lord of the Rings Online, I will play it with you. And it is loads of fun and one of the prettiest regions. (laughs) And then the next thing I want to mention is that in the extended editions, we get a scene of the passing of the elves and seeing a group of elves heading west. Uh, But we're actually thinking maybe we'll do um, some bonus episodes that'll just focus on the extended edition scenes um, in full, how they fit into the greater story, how they adapt the source material. Um, So uh, Emily does have some notes here, so I don't want to gloss over them because, you know, they do amazing work and I want all all her wonderful knowledge to spill out into your wonderful ears. Um, But I think we're kind of angling towards we'll maybe tackle all the extended scenes at the end of the movie or at some point during the course of our coverage of each of the films. Yeah. I think like the really quick point to be made is that like the passing of the elf scene is meant to signify that like the magic is going out of the world. Like this is definitely a world at the end of its like life in a lot of ways. And it's meant to make you feel like sad about the state of the world. And it does that super effectively because you are getting it right as you're passing out of the Shire for the first time. Um, And, and I think that like, you know, there are there are things to be said about like the pacing and the like choices in the extended editions, but that to me is like one of the ones where I'm like, yeah, good, like that that really like knocks it out of the park there, um, and it's good to feel longing and yearning for the time gone by. Yeah, and I think it it gives a little more to the Sam and his fascination with the elves, um, just insofar as we talked about it as a characteristic trait of Sam in these films, but he doesn't actually spend a lot of time with elves as seen on screen in the theatrical editions. And even when we get to Rivendell, he's the first one who's ready to go home, which is very fitting of his character. I don't think that's wrong. Um, but it's one of those things that we're told more than shown really. And I think that's where that extended scene really kind of helps. And then the last thing we'll close out on, and I think it's something we belabored, but we just kind of want to point out as we continue our kind of book adaptation discussions, is that Frodo is supposed to be about age 50 here, which is about the same age that Bilbo was when he set out for his journey with the dwarves to the Lonely Mountain. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, We've kind of talked about this a little bit in the Concerning Hobbits episode, but yeah, uh, these movies definitely frame this as like an 18-year-old about to begin his hero's journey, uh, leave his uh, moisture evaporate. Fuck, what's it, what's it, what's it called? Uh, <laughs> the, the moisture farm. Moist, yeah, leave the moisture farm from Tatooine as, uh, you know, a young man about to age into adulthood. Yeah, and I think this is like, it's again, like it's a contextual, like a historically contextually different thing. Like Tolkien is writing at a point when like 50-year-old men 
were sent out to have these life-changing journeys um, because they were sent off to the trenches to get obliterated in the meat grinder on behalf of the aristocracy. Um, And, you know, as much as, like, obviously there is not necessarily an age limit for, like, having horrible, horrible things happen to you in this world, in the, the mid to late 1990s, early 2000s, there is definitely a sense that, like, you get, like smacked in the face for the first time by reality when you're 18 um, and from then on out you're just kind of cynical and angry um, and so having Frodo as a 50 year old just would not convey the same thing that we like needed it to convey here for better or for worse and that closes the book on this episode of my brother my captain my podcast our email is my brother my captain my podcast at gmail.com and my bro my cap my pod on twitter Uh, We may put up an Instagram account sometime in the near future. We will keep you posted on that. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on. And manuclearbomb, hey, that's me. Um, I'm also covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieres. Um, And I've been Emily, um, and I'm now on Twitter as J.R.R. Tweeting. Um, So it's Tolkien, but if you take the Tolk, because I couldn't get talk, um, and now I'm Tweet instead, because that's like a really funny joke. Anyways, I'm there 24-7, systematically destroying any chance I have of ever looking well-adjusted, and I would love if you could come destroy your sanity with me. And uh, just uh, for your information, both Emily and my uh, Twitter accounts, as well as the main podcast Twitter account, will be linked in the podcast description. So easy access, hopefully, for you. Toasting a pint as well to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, uh, wherever you are listening to this podcast, as we are still getting things up and running. If there's a platform we are not on that you would like us to be on, please reach out, uh, whether through the Patreon or through our email, and we will do our best to make our podcast available there. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.